Hey, Max, have you ever been catfished? Um, I think so, yeah. Okay, well, remember that situation and hold on to that feeling because you're going to feel it again with my book today. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And before you get into your movie, because like all catfishing situations, you will have to wait for all to be revealed on my end. Did I ever tell you about the time I got catfished with my own pictures? Um, I don't think so. It was great. When I called him out on it, he blocked me. Fun times. Anyway... Yeah, I mean, what are the odds of that happening? Wait, but why would he talk to you? Because my face wasn't in the pictures that he sent me. Okay. On that note. Well, okay. So speaking of not catfish, but like awkwardly sexual situations, I'm doing a movie today that is really not so subtly hypersexual. And funny enough, this movie, I remember very vividly when I was growing up, I remember seeing it in the video stores. And even though I was very much so always into horror movies as a kid, this movie was one of the few movies that I was actually not allowed to rent. And I don't think that my parents cared too much about, you know, the gore and like I was, it was fine with like the Nightmare on Elm Streets and that kind of stuff. But this movie, I don't know why. And even after seeing it now, I don't 100% know why, but I wasn't allowed to rent. It does have a reputation for being hypersexualized. Maybe that was why, but it's all like female nudity, so they missed the mark on that one. What's it called? So, okay. I'm glad you asked with anticipation. I'm excited. Today, I'm talking about the 1988 film, The Lair of the White Worm. That was my nickname in middle school. Which one? <laughs> oh, God. The Lair. Well, the layer of the white worm. <laughs> honey. Honey. Yeah. That'd be, that would be a really great porn. I'm sure there's porn parodies about it. It has, So the movie did kind of develop a cult following. They have done midnight showings of this because it is that like late 80s kind of like weirdness. And this movie is weird. And it makes sense for the first at least 70% of it. Then it starts to unravel a little bit, and you'll kind of hear about it. But before I get into that, let's talk a little bit about this. Layer of the White Worm. What is it? Who made it? Well, I'm glad everyone is wondering that. It was written and directed by Ken Russell. Ken Russell made this as part of a three-part picture deal with Vestron Pictures after the success of his film Gothic in 1986. Gothic is a psychological horror that is a fictional retelling of Shelley's visit to Lord Byron concerning their competition to write a horror story, which, as obviously you know, ultimately led to Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein and John Polidori writing The Vampire. Yes. I do know. So that is the movie that made Russell kind of like stand outish and got him this deal. So then he decided to make this movie in 88. Well, I'm sure it was made. Well, maybe 88. I don't know. It was released in 88. 
The movie is based loosely on the 1911 Bram Stoker novel of the same name, drawing upon that as well as this English legend of this thing called the Lambton Worm that I did actually read that legend, but it was long and I don't want to talk about it because it was kind of dumb. So instead, I'm going to talk about Stoker's novel. You may have heard of him, Bram Stoker. Yes, I've read Dracula like five times. Yes. And as you know, I collect copies of Dracula. Why? I have no idea. You d- Yeah, we have literally like 12 of them. I, I used to have like 17, but I think I got rid of a few when I moved in, but not a lot of them. Yeah, I read Dracula. I've also seen it a literally a billion times. I like the movie adaptation of it. Everyone loves Dracula. I've never seen any of the movie adaptations of it. Oh, you should see the newer one. Well, I guess it's not new now, but the one with Keanu Reeves in it is pretty good. Yeah. But that being said. Sorry. Well, <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> while everyone loves Dracula, this one is not about Dracula, nor is it inspired by Dracula. It is instead inspired by the last novel, I believe, that Stoker wrote, The Lair of the White Worm, which nobody likes. Yikes. To give you a little idea, Les Daniels noted that while The Lair of the White Worm had potential, it was undermined by a clumsy style of writing. A horror critic, R.S. Haji, placed The Lair of the White Worm at number 12 on his list of worst horror novels ever written. Ooh. And H.P. Lovecraft, in his essay Supernatural Horror in Literature, stated that Stoker, quote, utterly ruins a magnificent idea by a development almost infantile. Jesus. Then again, Lovecraft was super racist, so... (laughs) Yeah, but also kind of brilliant, but also kind of heinous. It happens. Anyway, so people didn't like Stoker's novel. This movie is only loosely based on it. Russell made a bunch of changes. He said he basically used Stoker's book as the spine of his script, but he also was unimpressed by Stoker's novel, despite being a huge Dracula fan, saying that The Lair of the White Worm lacked imagination and the gothic quality of Dracula, and instead was just simply a very, quote, English story, which I don't 100% get. But it did kind of remind me a little bit of, like, some of the, like, English period pieces that we watch, except it's, like, horrific. I fucking love period pieces so much. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Russell also said that he didn't like Stoker's villain in the book, so instead he focused on the villainess of the novel, whom he found much more interesting and then changed it to be set in modern times instead of 1860, which is when the novel is, I guess, takes place. Yeah. And then he based the characters, like the supporting characters, on people that he knew in real life. Hmm. Hope that was flattering. Um, I don't necessarily know that any of the characters are that impressive. <laughs> but they're okay. They're all very English. Whatever that means. And then later on when talking about the film, Russell insists that the film, this Lair of the White Worm, his film, is actually a comedy and said, quote, audiences don't realize that my films are comedies until the last line has been delivered. And even then, most people don't appear to get the joke. He went on to say, I would like to state that I actively encourage the audience to laugh along with the White Worm. So, okay, here's my thought on that. (laughs) It's kind of like a teacher who their entire class is failing. Maybe it's not the students that aren't getting it. Maybe it's you, Karen. Maybe it's you. 
Yeah, I'm not sure what he even means by comedy. First of all, I'll say this. There is definitely a cultural aspect to humor. So this is a British film. And I don't know if maybe the humor is very British. Because it's not funny. It's absurd. It's And it's weird now because I can't really think of how it would have been seen back in 88. Because like now when I watch it, it's so over the top. And there's these like sort of vision dream sequency type things that literally are look like these like psychedelic 70s things and i'm like these are like i found them kind of funny because they were so over the top but i have a weird feeling they were meant to be serious when the movie was made yikes <laughs> like i'll tell you about them and you'll be like holy what the what yeah it's like that kind of a moment so anyways and then he also said that he made this film as a tribute to oscar wilde which makes no sense, other than it is very sexual. And he, too, was a layer for a white worm. Yeah, I mean, there's... I don't I don't get why he says that, but he does. It's what it is. Real quick, the cast is really weird. <laughs> um, because the main sort of... He's kind of the main protagonist a little bit. His name is Lord James Dampton. Mm. he's played by Hugh Grant. And you may be asking yourself, why is the actor from Notting Hill love actually in Bridget Jones' Diary in a 1988 horror film? Well, it was one of Grant's first films that he ever made and has now said that he is actually embarrassed by it. So fuck him. It do be like that sometimes. You're embarrassed by the lair of the white worm, but not by Notting Hill. Never seen Notting Hill, so I don't even get that reference. Sorry. Okay, let's try that again. You're embarrassed by Lair, the White Worm, but not by Bridget Jones' Diary. Yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and let you know that I haven't seen any of those films. Oh, my God. I feel like those would be right up your alley. I haven't seen Notting Hill, Bridget Jones' Diary, or what was it, Love Actually? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've seen Bridget Jones' Diary, but from what I understand, it's about Renee Zellweger sitting on her couch and eating chocolates and feeling sorry for herself. Oh, same. That's why I said I thought it would be right up your alley. I mean, I usually like... Salted caramel ice cream. That's like my go-to sad. <laughs> the Talenti. Yes, it's the Talenti. Oh my gosh. I have sobbed my way through so much Talenti sitting on my kitchen counters. This is before I met you. This is my fight song. God. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just a couple other people. The character of Lady Sylvia Marsh, she is the villainess, is played by Amanda and I At first, I thought it was Donahue, but it's D-O-N-O-H-O-E, so I think it's Donahoe. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But I thought it was kind of interesting because that character originally was, uh, they had tried to get Tilda Swinton to play it, and I love Tilda Swinton, but she apparently turned down the role after reading the script. So, okay. I'm really bad with names because if you showed me a picture of Tilda Swinton, I would literally say that's Tilda Swinton. She's the one who's kind of androgynous, right? She's in Constantine. Yes. She plays the angel in Constantine. She makes me feel very confused about my sexual orientation. (laughs) I love her. She has such a strange look to her, but I mean, it's very recognizable. I think people would recognize her face, maybe even more than her name, but I have never... I've not seen like a single thing that she's in that I have not thought she was amazing in. Yeah, no. Incredible. Very talented. And like I said, I hot in a way that I don't understand. And she's great. I love Constantine. I I don't know. I think people have mixed feelings about it because there's people are super attached to the novels, but 
or the, the graphic novels. I have never read those, so I don't really have any sort of idea about them. And I just saw that movie, and I thought it was great. And I think they're actually working on a new one. That's Ooh. that's the buzz, like with Keanu Reeves and everything. He's good. So I think that character in the movie is different than in the novels. But he's good at that character because Keanu Reeves excels playing any character whose entire personality is based around the idea of, whoa. God. You know, it's, it, it is what it is. Anyways, let's move on to this movie. I've prattled a lot, but I'll sum up a lot of this plot because it's really weird and doesn't make sense. But I will mention that the film opens up on a big cavernous hole. So it's already a great movie. I've seen a lot of movies that open up like that. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah, basically there's this cave. So there's this cave in this town, and we meet some characters. Angus Flint, he's a Scottish archaeology student visiting England, and he's staying at this bed and breakfast and also doing this, like, dig outside of the bed and breakfast i don't 100 get it but he finds a big snake skull that's all you have to know and the bed and breakfast is run by two sisters mary and eve trent okay those are those people later on we meet um hugh grant's character sir or lord james sir james i can't actually remember now I, i've written down both of them but he's a landowner so i guess it'd be lord james yes Sir is someone who is knighted. Yeah. So he meets Lord James. They have this party to celebrate. There's this like legend where Lord James's family had slayed this big white worm by cutting it in half. It's like this like medieval legend type situation. Yeah. And so now this little town has a festival about it. So they have this festival where they're eating all this disgusting stuff. And like at one point they're eating what looks like a plate of, to be honest, it looks like thin red rope licorice that's like covered in some sort of slimy stuff. But... Lord James is like, oh, I see you enjoy our local specialty, pickled earthworms and aspic. And it's like, that is gross, but it also sounds distinctly English. Actually, it's a savory gelatinous dish. I mean, they love weird shit with aspic, which is literal just like gelatinous. Like, I, th- I think it's like animal product, right? Yeah, I think it's like a savory gelatin. Or is it seaweed product? No, that's agar. Okay, yeah. It's gross, though. I mean, English food is a trip. Okay, but fish and chips. I will never not order fish and chips if it's on the menu. You could take me to, like, the nicest steakhouse in the world, and if they had fish and chips, I'd be like, okay, but, like, what kind of batter do they use? I like fried fish as much as the next person, I guess. I don't, like, crave it or anything like that. And French fries, I've never been a French fry person. I don't really get that obsession. Potatoes. I know. I've never had that thing for potatoes. That's just me. I've always, see, I've always been like an onion ring person. I love onion rings. I mean, they're fine, but potatoes. Anyway, we are like super sidetracked today. Oh my God, I'm never going to get through this movie. It's great though. I'm having a lot of fun. Okay, so Sylvia Marsh, Lady Sylvia, we find her. She is amazing. I thought about like getting some screenshots to show you of her because her styleness is so cool. But she's basically super sexualized. She is essentially the acolyte of this, like, great white worm god. And so her hair is kind of short, but it's always, like, slicked back. She's wearing very light foundation. Like, like probably two shades too light for her actual skin tone, but it works out. And then she's got, like, um, bright red lipstick on all the time. Yeah. And she walks around wearing shit, like, like thigh-high vinyl red boots and nobody thinks it's weird it's it's pretty awesome i'm not gonna lie she looks great all the time 
so we basically get introduced to her and the way real quick a cop goes to investigate because somebody's like they see this car at her house and she normally is like out of town or something and the cop goes and she's actually there the cop actually gets bit by a snake in the ankle she brings him inside and she sucks the venom out of it but like distinctly swallows the venom instead of spitting it out and so that's that she makes when you first meet her she makes a lot of really heavy-handed snake metaphors and i thought it was going to like super annoy me but they kind of toned back that a little bit i mean a little bit some of it's really stupid like her favorite game is snakes and ladders and she plays it with this kid I'll, the scene is great i'll talk about it in a little bit but it's like whatever she also makes a lot of sexual jokes and references and has a very inappropriate sense of humor which is kind of like me I was so, going to say, that's not anything you know about at all. Yes. So, speeding right along. She ends up going by the bread and breakfast and stealing the skull of that big snake because I guess it means something to her religiously. At first, I thought it was the snake god, but the snake god appears in the end of the movie. So, it's very clearly not him, but maybe it was... Oh! Now I figured it out. The legend is that that the guy's ancestor cuts the head off the snake. But then they do talk about snakes regenerating. So I think the snake regenerated. So that is the original head of the snake. Oh, boy. Anyways, so at the bed and breakfast, she steals the skull. Then she passes a crucifix and she like hisses at it and she has big fangs and she spits venom all over the crucifix. Oh, awesome. It's only really relevant because Eve, one of the sisters who runs it, comes and then she sees this like green stuff on her crucifix and touches it. And then she has one of those like weird space out psychedelic flash moments that I was talking about where it's a whole it's completely different style. And it really reminds me of those like 70s like freak out moments where the shows would just like, well, you probably aren't familiar, but like the shows would just kind of like cut out to like people dancing and doing like weird stuff. Oh, yeah. Except this was this like trippy scene of like. Jesus on a cross with like a giant white worm wrapped around him and the worms taking like big bites out of Jesus. And then also there's topless nuns running around getting like massacred and raped by centurions. Yes. Topless nuns. No sexual assault. It's weird. It didn't. It, to be honest, I wasn't even 100% sure it was sexual assault. But then like at the very end, it kind of becomes clear because at, at first they're just stabbing the nuns, the topless nuns who are like shaking their boobs and blood splattering everywhere it, it's really fucking weird anyway jesus Christ. anyway the next notable scene is when lady sylvia picks up this kid kevin he probably is only like 17 years old and he's out like hitchhiking in the rain and she's like oh you're gonna catch your death she takes him back they're playing shoots and ladders she is wearing really skimpy black panties abroad this like sheer like i don't even know what they're called it's a not a negligee maybe it's like what it it's like a robe but it's like a sheer robe and it's lingerie and it's sexy yes i'm picturing like the like fur trim floor length like what i will wear when the police come (laughs) to tell me that my second husband has mysteriously disappeared that's exactly what it is it even has like a trim to it but the rest of it is like sheer yes and then also thigh high black patent leather boots because she only wears thigh-high patent leather boots of different colors. And this kid is like, she's having like brandy with this kid and playing snakes and ladders. And it's really weird. Also, as far as her boot choice is concerned, Max, it's called a capsule wardrobe. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, basically. Ultimately, she ends up running a bath for this kid, and she's, like, being super sexual with him, and then she stands him up, and then she bites his dick with her fangs. You don't see it, but it happens. And then he gets paralyzed, and then she essentially kills him. The end of Kevin. Jesus. Yeah. So As in, this movie needs Jesus. Yeah. So then, very quickly after, we're treated to this dream sequence from Lord James, where he has this dream. He had met Lady Sylvia. They're neighbors, but he doesn't talk to her that often. And... Long story short, this dream sequence, a bunch of weird shit happens, but ultimately he ends up on a private jet and his, and then like, I think that he's in a relationship with Eve. It's not explored upon, but ultimately Eve and Lady Sylvia are flight attendants who are wearing these like powder blue flight attendant things, but also have like full stockings and garter belts. And they end up wrestling with each other on the floor and Lord James gets an erection this, I mean, it makes, this movie makes no sense. I understand why you weren't allowed to watch it when you were a little kid. But there's not, like, full-on peen. It's just, like, it's actually, it's, like, symbolically he gets an erection. He's holding a pencil, and he's like, slowly raises the pencil on his lap. Oh, okay. No. I mean, to be honest with you, I had seen many a penis at that point in my life. Anyway, so, moving on. Okay, so, oh my god, I feel like I'm only halfway through this fucking movie. <laughs> We'll pick up the pace, Buttercup. All right. Okay, so Lady Sylvia abducts Eve, takes her to the house where she's talking about how she's going to sacrifice her to her god, Dionin, an ancient snake god. Side note, she is fully naked in a tanning bed while talking to Eve, who has been charmed because um, she apparently, um, Lady Sylvia has, like, mind control powers, I guess. I don't know. Charms her and is talking about how she's going to be, like, the virgin sacrifice because... That was a big thing back then. She tells Eve to call her sister and let her know that she's going to go to London for a few days because she wants to get away. Eve starts to call, but then she sees this, like, weird Jesus ring that she wears, like some girls I knew in high school. And she, like, snaps out of the trance and then screams, Dionin! And then Lady Sylvia, like, sprays acid on her to make her, or venom on her to make her pass out and then hangs up the phone. So at that point, there's, like, a huge sort of plot jump where Lord James and stuff just kind of decide that they figured out that Lady Sylvia is an acolyte for this old snake god. It's a really long scene where they kind of work it out. It does not make sense, but it moves the plot along, so that's that, I guess. To sure. Yeah. Also, I forgot to mention that Mary and Eve's parents had been missing the whole time. Well, Mary's mother turns up, and she is also a snake person now, And she attacks Mary, she bites her, and then she also attacks Sir James, who grabs the family sword from the wall and chops the mother in half, who then, like, writhes around on the ground in two halves. It's actually kind of a cute scene, so. At the same time, Laura James had hatched this plan to try to lure Lady Sylvia to the house by playing snake charmer music, which does work. (laughs) Music. This... But the power gets cut off, and so his record player stops playing. <laughs> oh, boy. Jesus. Yeah. Um. God, I'm going to fast forward through a lot of this. There's too much. So, Angus, basically, we see Angus shooting this thing into his arm. We later find out that he that it's supposed to be anti-venom. And then he also pulls... They go to Sylvia's house. 
Lady Sylvia. And he also pulls a mongoose out of his bag because apparently mongoose are... Is it mongoose? Mongooses. Mongooses. Mongooses are the natural enemy of snakes. Yes. So apparently he just had a mongoose. I think the reason that they even incorporated this is because in the Stoker novel, there's like a whole bunch of shit about mongooses. I read the synopsis of it. I do not have time to go through it. It sounds super fucking boring. But they one of the guys keeps pet mongooses to help him hunt. And it's like a big part of it. Okay. So he pulls the mongoose out, lets the mongoose go. The mongoose ends up getting killed. And then Sylvia bites Angus, which paralyzes him. She then drags him downstairs to her, like, well, lair, I guess. And it's like this big stone cave. Eve is chained up in her brawn panties next to this pit. And Angus, Mary, I think, is also there paralyzed. And Angus is paralyzed. Well, Angus gets unparalyzed. And Lady Sylvia is going to sacrifice Eve. And she gives this, she's, oh, I forgot to mention, she's also completely painted blue at this point. (laughs) So we have deviated from her original color palette. It is no longer a capsule wardrobe. Well, she's 100% naked except for very small panties. I think she's supposed to look fully nude because it almost looks like they're like, um, like studio panties to like cover up like actual things like uh, American, but not American. So she actually, she looks a little bit like, like a very bootleg cosplay version of Mystique from the X-Men. Cause she's like fully blue and she's kind of got, um, yellow snake eyes. Oh, okay. And her hair is completely slicked back. Yeah. Cause she only wears it like that. And then, so then she walks up to Eve and she's like doing all this like shenanigans, chanting about, um, Dionin and sacrifices and stuff. And then Eve looks down and she's got a huge strap on, on, and it's basically this like pointed strap on that looks like it's carved out of maybe bone or something and like it looks kind of sharp i'm not gonna lie but then before she can use the strap on on eve we hear this grumbling and it's the snake from the pit neck the pit next to eve and it's like the the great white worm god and so you look down and you see this giant white worm head and it's kind of like mouth is bloody and stuff like that so it just like looks scary side note for people who care that was made from the front of a Volkswagen Beetle, because apparently they look like snakeheads, and it was effective. They they do look like snakeheads. So anyways, I'm still <laughs> trying to wrap my mind around strap-on. I'm sorry. Yeah, it kind of came out of nowhere, to be honest. So Angus comes to, and you're like, oh, the anti-venom must have worked. Then he goes, and he, like, grabs Lady Sylvia and pushes her. Eve is dangling over the pit at this point, like, uh, in shackles. Pushes her. Lady Sylvia grabs onto Eve's ankles. So she's hanging over the white worm. And then Angus goes down. And instead of just kind of like pulling her hands off, he just decides it's much easier to just chop her hands off. But he doesn't have anything super sharp. So he grabs his knife and he saws her hands off. And then she falls into the worm's mouth because her hand gets sawed off. And then he saves the day. Right? Right. Okay. So then we're going to wrap it up. So... First time I've said that in a while. So then Angus is talking to Lord James. And Lord James is like, where are Mary and Eve? And he's like, oh, they're at the hospital getting treated for their snake bites. And he's like, thank God I had this antivenom. Well, then Angus goes into the house and he gets a phone call from the hospital. And they're like, oh, the other day when you stopped by for that antivenom, we gave you the wrong thing. It wasn't antivenom. It was arthritis medication. You can pick up your antivenom tomorrow. Hmm. I've got a very key plot point. 
they do explain that the snake bites in this movie work like a form of vampirism, where if you're bitten, you kind of turn into a snake acolyte person. That was important. I left it out, but now it's here. So, so he didn't take antivenom. He took arthritis medication, so I don't 100% know how he got his nervous system back. But we'll just pretend like that's not a huge plot issue. So then him and Hugh Grant are, who is Lord James, are driving off and basically they're going, I think maybe to, I can't remember where they're going, but Lord James is like, should we stop for a bite on the way? And Angus is like, sure, why not? And then Angus like pulls up his kilt and there's two snake bites. And then Lord James looks down and looks up and he looks really shocked. And then it just cuts to black. And that's the end of the movie. Layer of the white worm. Oh boy. That one was a wild ride. That was a lot wilder than you've done in a while. It's really weird. I think, and these are kind of my final thoughts on it too. I think the appeal of this movie, I think when you summarize the plot, people's initial reactions, probably this sounds kind of dumb and like really weird. But I think the appeal to this movie and why I didn't actually hate it that much is the aesthetic of it is really cool. And the character of Lady Sylvia is actually really, really fun. She is, she does make jokes. She is really just like, I don't know. She's kind of iconic in a way. Like, I don't know why more people don't sort of reference her a little bit in things because like the way that she dresses, she always has these weirdly shaped sunglasses when she goes out during the day. She's actually very cool looking. And if, I don't know, if I were a wayfish woman, I would cosplay her. That's just that. And not be allowed in any conventions. Yeah. (laughs) But so, okay. What I liked and what I didn't like, I did like the visuals of it. Lady Sylvia is great. I like the weird sort of like, sexualization and even kind of the weird flashbacks i was like this is so strange but kind of in an enjoyable way i could see watching it at like a midnight showing being drunk or at a bar or something like that i didn't love some of the like gaping plot holes like they literally it's clear that they literally wrote scenes to sort of try to advance plot and to fill plot holes and it kind of is a little bit too much and then i thought the ending was a little bit meh but It is what it is. All in all, I'll say this. If you like really weird, over-sexualized horror, you should definitely watch this. It's, I think, underrated. Even though it has developed a somewhat of a cult following, I think it probably is deserving of more because it's that level of absurdity. Yeah. So, anyways, I have prattled on far too long about this movie. So, that's 1988's Lair of the White Worm. Now, tell me what you're going to talk about. Well, buckle up. You had a wild ride and so do I. So this week we are heading right back into vintage horror with 1985's Daddy's Little Girl by Daniel Ransom, which is a pseudonym for Edward Gorman. And this one is a doozy. So let's just go ahead and jump right in, I guess. Okay. I could not find any information about the cover artist of the book, and I actually did like a decent amount of researching for it because I felt like like maybe, maybe I would find something, but I couldn't. But the cover is amazing. Uh, it's a scared little girl. She's probably like seven or so, and she's sitting on the lap of a skeleton who's wearing like pajama pants and slippers and this like smoking jacket robe. I don't, it's so good. It's weird looking for sure. Uh, The tagline is, she was young, innocent, and deadly. 
I'm starting. I'm starting to piece together what I think that m- this book might be about because when I knew you were doing this book because you had talked about the title of it, and I thought it was going to be something a whole different. But now I'm starting to think maybe I might know what this is about. I'm excited. You're probably still wrong. <laughs> For posterity, uh, what do you think it's about? Well, I don't. I don't want to get into too much because I feel like this is just going to be dead and not that interesting. But my original thought was that it was going to be this weird, like, incest-y thing because I feel like we're always fucking talking about incest. But now that I'm seeing this and seeing that tagline, I'm assuming it's a little bit more of, like, a psycho situation where she's this, like, murderous little girl who lives with her dead father. Well, let's go ahead and get to the blurb. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No one could find her. No one could save her. Sweet, innocent Deirdre was missing, but no one in the small, quiet town of Burton wanted to find her. They had waited a long time for the perfect sacrifice, and now they had found it. She couldn't hear it, she couldn't see it, but she could feel it. The breath of darkness along her tender flesh. The eyes of the beast piercing her heart. Deirdre cried out in terror, for she knew that when the evil entered her soul, she would never again be daddy's little girl. So this is like a, is this like a ta- an evil town story? Like Lovecraftian, kind of? Still no. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a good time to just go ahead and point out that the cover, the tagline, and the blurb have nothing to do with the actual story. Okay. I was catfished. I was bamboozled. I wanted like little girl is raised by a possessed skeleton and grows up to be this like femme fatale serial killer sort of mood. And that's not what I got at all. Oh, don't steal that idea. That sounds great. (laughs) This is what I got instead. Our story opens up with a man named Adam Carnes. C-A-R-N-E-S. Carnes. Theoretically, we're going to guess. I don't call him by his last name like ever again, who is 36 and he is driving with his 16 year old daughter. Okay. That's which is totally fine, especially because it's 85. Yeah. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, my yeah, people have kids that early. I mean, you have kids that early now, but back then I feel like it was actually commonplace. Yeah, but I'm sitting here thinking like, oh my God, if I were him, I'd have like a 10-year-old. And that is terrifying because I can barely take care of myself. Oh my God, I know. Uh, so he is driving with his 16-year-old daughter, Deirdre, for her first extended visit with him since he divorced her mother two years before. His or Her mother, who had married the man that she'd been having an affair with for three years. We find this all out on like page two. We are already getting the tea and it is piping hot. Sure. That couldn't have made that work out? Clearly not. So he's trying to bond with her. And so they are discussing how amazing Michael Jackson is (laughs) and how he can do no wrong. He's just perfect and amazing and such a good guy (laughs) and will be well-loved by everyone forever, which aged about as well as how this book treats women. (laughs) That didn't age well at all. And what happens next is pretty brief. Uh, They stop off at a roadside motel for the night when Adam comes out from checking in. Deirdre is (gasps) gone. Okay. Speaking of their treatment of women, uh, in the very next scene, because this book has 
give or take like almost 200 chapters. So like short chapters. Like half a page. Oh, okay. Well, okay. So it'll be like chapter one, but then chapter one has like 12 parts. It was awful. (laughs) I think it was trying to give this impression of like everything happening at once and it didn't work and it was just annoying. Sure. Anyway, so we meet Beth. She is the woman who runs the local newspaper, which was once run by her late husband. She is very heavy-handedly described as sad. Because, quote, without children and without quite giving herself permission to find another man, Beth had little else in life. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Poor Beth. What is she going to do? Sit around and watch Bridget Jones' diary? I know, right? She is childless, bereft, lonely. Nothing of value going on in her life without a man or crotch spawn to give her purpose. My coworker Laura's response when I told her about Beth's situation was, and I quote, has she tried not being a female character in a book written by a straight white man in the 80s? I hear that does wonders for your mental health. I mean... That's pretty much clocked, though. Which Clara also wanted me to emphasize is not victim blaming in any way. It is a joke about how white, straight white men wrote women in the 80s. Anyway, the main point of her being included right at this point is that she finds a note from her late husband marking the birth of, quote, an insatiable animal on June 8th, 1953. She's also used as a means for us to meet Richard. And Richard is a man who is experiencing homelessness in the town of Burton. Richard suffered a head injury as a child that impaired his cognitive development. What happened, you asked? You didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you. Young Richard was walking in the woods when he came across a boy masturbating. So the boy cracked Richard over the head with a rock. That's not how it usually goes in... The videos I've seen. Oh, God. Richard was like seven. Stop. (laughs) So this book jumps back and forth across storylines so hard. And it's actually very disorienting. So meanwhile, I'm going to say meanwhile so much during this. I'm going to give you a heads up. Adam is questioned by Sheriff Wayman and Reverend Heath. Also, meanwhile, we have an older lady named Ruth Foster and her maid Minerva. And they are unsettled by animal howling in the basement of the Foster Mansion. The Foster family owns a meatpacking factory. And that's basically the town's only industry. It's important. (sighs) Okay. I feel like the meatpacking thing, I've seen that a lot. There's so many jokes there. I can't even pick one. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking oh about that. God, I'm just saying, I feel like it's kind of like a trope where like, because I feel like slaughterhouses are, people find them inherently sort of scary. And obviously there's this not so subtle in like implication of gore because you're killing livestock. Yes. So I feel like a lot of horror tellers use them. Well, it's fine. You never see the meatpacking factory. It's just important that they have it. Okay. (laughs) I told you, this book makes no sense. Okay, so, uh, like I said, it jumps around a lot. So, just continue buckling up. Because we also meet the local handyman. His name is Jake. And he is friends with Richard. And, and, amidst 
all of this, we have stream of consciousness sections here and there where a nameless character, like, clearly has captured Deirdre. Is it the scary part of him capturing Deirdre? But you don't actually see Deirdre be captured. It's just, like, you get a very brief section of this stream of consciousness of, like, dragging Deirdre through the woods and shit like that. Okay. It's weird. This book is weird. Does it get scary? No. Oh. Not really, except for, like, the treatment of women. And I'll get to that. So, when Richard appears, he says a few vague things about the motel to Beth. So, she goes to talk to the sheriff. And this is where she meets Adam. And they team up to solve the mystery, both of the mysterious date that she found, as well as to find Deirdre. Okay. So... Remember my exasperated opinion of how this author treats women? Yes. Buckle up. In a side storyline that really only tangentially comes into contact with the main storyline, we meet Dave, Bobby, and Angie. Dave is 17. They're all high schoolers. And he is a super stud. Um, Bobby is his one-man fan club. And he is a skinny nerd described as... And I quote, literally it's in quotation marks in my notes, weighing not much more than a concentration camp victim. That's not a good metaphor at all. Nope. Yikes. And Angie is the hottest piece of ass in the whole school. When we meet her, she is wearing a sweater that hugs her breasts And slacks so tight that Dave can see her labia. (laughs) Which I'm pretty sure isn't possible. Well, I guess it depends. Slacks, maybe not, but maybe some form of yoga pant or something. No, these are slacks. Like, they're described as slacks. Hmm. I mean, maybe, maybe she's got a gigantic labia. You don't know her. Slacks so tight that he can see, (laughs) quote, her lower lips. Lips he wanted to taste. (laughs) I mean, that just sounds like uh, camel toe to me. Still. Still. No. See, that's how it should have been written. He could see her delicious camel toe. God. Traipsing through the desert of her slacks. (laughs) God. Anyway... She was basically like the text equivalent of those really objectifying um, superhero comics. Uh, Like all of them? Yes, but like the really (laughs) bad ones. Like there's one that I saw somewhere where like a superheroine is like crouching down and you see her from behind and literally like her butthole is outlined. Yeah, yeah. There's some famous ones of that kind of stuff. So that's more what I was referencing. Anyway, Angie has struck a deal with Dave. If he sneaks in to the basement of the foster mansion and brings something, anything, to Angie, she will bestow upon him the blessed gift of her virginity. Uh, Yeah, okay. Uh, Which is also leading into the fact that this author does not write natural progressions of emotions well. So Bobby looks at Angie lustfully, and Angie says that Dave needs to do something about it. And when he doesn't immediately do anything, she freaks out on him and storms off. And so Dave literally throws Bobby into a locker. 
like picks him up and throws him across the high school hallway into a locker. Okay, that's a good name. Back to Adam. Meanwhile. Wait, which one is Adam? Adam is Deirdre's father. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Adam and Beth start to look into the date, and they run across a newspaper article from a couple of days later about a girl being attacked by a man who made, quote, animalistic sounds. And Adam thinks that maybe that's related to Deirdre's disappearance. So they focus on that mystery instead. I make animalistic sounds sometimes. Baby raptor noises. (coughs) Meanwhile, we meet Carl. And I'm just going to go ahead and insert a content warning that anytime I am talking about Carl, just be prepared. Uh, He's toxic. He's violent. He's what I think every incel jerks off at night hoping to grow up to be. Uh, This all, as I'm reading this, was a lot funnier before the invasion of our capital. (laughs) What? Whatever. I don't think people put that together. Um, Because I wrote these notes before that happened, but we're recording after. So, yeah. Anyway, he owns lots of guns, and he has lots of opinions about being a man and what that really means. He probably also does, like, short YouTube clips of him in his truck talking about how terrible everything is. Oh, my God. I've seen those. (laughs) It's great. He's also the head of a mysterious gathering of the town council. That'll factor in later. Fucking town council. I know, right? They're as bad as HOAs. Does it seem like I'm still jumping around? That's because this book does that the entire time. Can you tell that I wasn't pleased? Yeah, that can be a little bit frustrating, especially when you're reading. Because yeah. even books that, back, that go back and forth between two storylines, sometimes it annoys me because you read one, you get really into it. And then the next chapter is like the parallel storyline that eventually will converge. And you're like, oh, man, I was just getting into what was happening. Yeah, I wasn't into any of these chapters. <laughs> Uh, So I'm going to try and wrap up the middle portion of this book because our recording is going on a little bit long and the end is the really ridiculous part. Uh, So basically over the course of the investigation, buckle up, I'm covering a lot of ground. We learned that Richard saw who took Deirdre but didn't recognize him and he was later threatened by Carl. Super toxic guy. Handyman Jake finds a concerning bloody apron in the basement of the mansion And also hears whimpering, but he chooses not to investigate. We also get snippets from Deirdre's point of view. She is chained, naked, of course, to the ceiling of an underground room. Her breasts are all cut up, which is weird. Like, she woke up. She was, like, knocked unconscious in the car while she was waiting for her dad. And she woke up to someone, like, slashing her breasts with a razor. Yikes. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure this author just, like, hates women. The author takes great delight in degrading her as much as possible. It's really sick and fucked up. At one point, she gets her period, which I don't understand why we needed to know that. Except, like, it's For just sh- it's just there to try and humiliate her more. For shock, yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, I'm pretty sure the author hates women. We also get what you know is my favorite. And I say that sarcastically. My most hated, over-sexualized occurrence used to humiliate women in misogynistic bullshit. She pees herself. Yeah. She's so sorry. She couldn't help it. Yeah, that does happen a lot. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it so much. This is what, like, the third book that that's happened in? Fucking hate it. Anyway, 
Adam and Beth go to talk to the woman who had been attacked by the guy who made animalistic sounds. Uh, She was left horrifically traumatized, but she mentions the name Kenny. And the next section is from her mother's point of view. And her mother, like in her head, like in her thoughts, acknowledges the existence of Kenny, but also thinks about how she is getting paid off for her silence. And we learn that Kenny is Ruth Ann's son. If you are confused as to who Ruth Ann is, that's because we've jumped around a whole lot. She's the old lady who lives in the foster mansion and owns the meatpacking factory. Okay. There's a lot of people in this book. There are. It all kind of converges at the end. Don't worry, it still doesn't make sense. The Grand Town Council is discussing Deirdre, and they talk about how they agreed to a deal that they made for the prosperity of the town, but we still don't know what the deal is. And Carl decides that he's over spineless people, so he sets the cabin on fire with the town council still inside. Mm, Okay. Because they're not real men. They're spineless. (laughs) So he sets the cabin on fire. Afterwards, Carl heads towards the foster mansion. And here's where everything comes to a head. But first, I want to tell you about the locker room and shower scene. Did you think that you were getting out of that in this beautiful example of sexist trash? Because if so, you would be wrong. What? Okay. This scene, of course, has Angie with her sleek, youthful, naked body. That's like how it's described. Um, And keep in mind, these are teenagers. She is with her friends, Betty and Jane. And again... They're all naked because how else can we sexualize underage girls if they're not? So we already know all about Angie's body, what with her visible labia. But Ransom slash Gorman lets us know that Betty has a boyish figure, but it's okay because she has a delicate face. And that Jane's enormous breasts appeared to be filled with water because of how much they slosh, yes, (laughs) slosh, back and forth when she walks. (laughs) They're trying to catch a girl named Corey because they think that Corey masturbates in the showers after everyone leaves. And the shower room is filled with steam, so they can't quite see her, but they can hear her, and she's making grunting sounds. And Angie wonders if Dave will make her make those same grunting sounds that night. (laughs) I'm not joking. It's so bad. Then the girls randomly panic in the room full of steam where they can't see anything, So all four of them are running around the shower room, blind, naked. They're like bumping into each other, nakedness everywhere, Jane's giant water balloon, titties like squish up against everyone. I'm not kidding. Like descriptions of her giant jiggly breasts squishing up against the other girls pops up like three times. And in general, just sloshes all around. I really wish I were joking. It's so bad. When they get back into the locker room area, Angie lays back on one of the benches with her legs spread, quote, as if receiving a lover. And her friends point at her genitals and make jokes about how Dave is going to have them that night. I mean, I've never been a teenage girl, but that sounds pretty much like what they do. It's just... I had a very different high school experience than these people. I I just, it was bad. All right, buckle up. We're finally at the end, but it is a lot of different characters converging, so I'm going to say meanwhile even more. 
Beth and Adam are in the foster mansion, and they are looking for Deirdre. Meanwhile, Angie and Dave are parked outside the foster mansion. Bobby is hidden in the back seat of the car. And before Dave can get out to try and sneak into the basement, Bobby jumps up and scares both of them. Angie teases Dave about being scared, so he runs off. Then Bobby shoots his shot, so she makes fun of Bobby too. So Bobby runs off. Content warning here. Because along comes Carl, consumed with, quote, his Celtic bloodlust from having killed the town council by burning them in the fire. So he sees Angie and is just overwhelmed by his sheer masculinity and the testosterone pumping through him. So he rapes her. Okay. Because he's such a man. I would like to point out, and there's very little to defend about this book. Very little. Carl is not actually written as someone to idolize. Like, it's clear that the author does not mean for him to be likable. But he also is this, like, every incel who thinks they're secretly a Viking. Like, their wet dream of becoming. Another content warning. Because meanwhile, Deirdre has somehow gotten down from the ceiling. But in walks a man wearing a goofy mask. Goofy, like, from Mickey Mouse. Okay. And Deirdre scurries back, thinking to herself that, quote, None of this should be happening to anybody whose world was filled with clearasil and stuffed teddy bears. <laughs> Sadly, her clear skin won't save her because Goofy Mask attacks and sexually assaults her. Sephora can't save you now. Wait, wasn't she chained to a ceiling or something? Yeah, somehow she got down. Okay. Literally, she was like dozing off and like woke up to falling from the ceiling. The author just wanted her to be like backing away super scared and naked with like dried pee and period blood on her thighs as Goofy Mask is coming towards her. Thinking about how in a world full of stuffed teddy bears, this should never be happening. Okay. He takes off his mask and spoiler alert, bum, 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 Goofy Mask, aka our animalistic killer is Handyman Jake. But what about Kenny, you ask? Well, buckle up. Kenny has dissociative identity disorder. For people who are not up to snuff on their modern terminology for psychological illnesses, that is multiple personality disorder. He kept attacking and killing women when he was younger, but Ruth kept him safe because she has an agreement with the town council. Her son stays out of jail and she won't move the factory, an act that would ruin the town's economy. Eventually, the killings became too much, so they fake Kenny's death and they send him away. But Ruth misses him too much, so she gets him some plastic surgery so that no one will recognize him (laughs) and brings him back as Jake. And then she continues her deal with the city council, and Carl brings Jake girls that are just passing through town in order to satisfy his need to kill. This is the dumbest thing I think I've heard in a long time. It's bad. Um, This is all explained on like a page and a half, maybe 10 pages from the end. The entire book makes zero sense until that point. It's supposed to be this like gag worthy twist, but there wasn't like to have a good twist. You need to have hints along the way that when the twist happened, you're like, oh, my God, I should have seen this coming. There were so many clues. The only clue was like the bloody apron in the basement, sort of almost, but not really. It's It's really stupid. I mean, every part of that is dumb. Oh, it gets worse. So in our final scene, Carl is in the basement with Kenny Jake, Deirdre, and Ruth is also down there as well. 
and he's tired of the bullshit, so he wants to kill Kenny Jake. And so he whips out a grenade. Oh my god. I completely forgot to tell you that <laughs> there's a grenade in Lair of the White Worm as well. I totally fucking forgot that they do kill the big white worm that eats the girl because Angus pulls a grenade out of his pocket that he just has and throws it down the pit for the white worm to eat it. That's so funny. Also a huge plot point that I missed. <laughs> well, Angus and Carl have their love of pocket grenades in common. So he pulls out a grenade. Yes, a grenade. And just then, Adam appears. And perhaps it has slipped your mind that he and Beth were searching the house. That's fine. They started in the attic, so it took him a long time to get down to the basement. Because literally all of this other shit was happening while he and Beth were just like puttering around. Adam tackles Carl as the grenade is going off. Try and piece this all together. Carl, Ruth, and Kenny Jake all die in the blast, but somehow Adam is totally fine, despite having tackled someone who was holding a grenade as the grenade was exploding. Deirdre is also sort of totally fine. I mean, she was like in the middle of being sexually assaulted when all of this was going on. Okay. She recovers. And Adam decides that Burton is the kind of town that he wants to live his life in. So he makes plans to move there. The end. (laughs) Why would you want to move to that town? I have no. Why do you want to bring your teenage daughter to the town where she was kidnapped, held hostage, and assaulted? This book is stupid. So honestly. It's not even scary. And also, I don't understand, one, why it's called Daddy's Little Girl. And two, why there's a little girl sitting on a skull lap or a skeleton lap on the cover. I don't know. I'm very disappointed by this, to be honest with you. I I mean, I'm guessing it's called Daddy's Little Girl because Deirdre's father is looking for her this whole time kind of thing. Yeah, but I feel like Daddy's Little Girl has either. Well, it either has. Is there, there's two implications of that title. It's either sexual or sinister. And But I feel like this doesn't apply to either of them. Nope. Anyway. Anyway, I hated this book. Uh, The information on the outside not only didn't describe this story, but it was flat out misleading. What little plot that there was, was flimsy at best, and hurriedly explained away by the most absurd story of plastic surgery and faked deaths. And at the end of the day, I couldn't get past the treatment of women with their sloshy breasts. Um, so I know that horror, particularly 80s horror, is not, like, a happy place for women, but this was particularly ridiculous. Most horror just kind of, like, sexualizes and objectifies them, but this was nothing but the objectification and the degradation of women with, like, a rice paper thin layer of a horror story over it. I am giving it one out of five catfish. It is my first rating of one. Don't read this. (laughs) yeah i'm not i'm not impressed by this story at all it's not even scary that's the kind of dumb part about it anyway if you were to die as a little girl would you be killed um so i don't think i would die in this i'm not a woman and that is who usually gets killed because carl singles out girls and brings them to kenny jake Uh, That said, there is an entire, like, chapter of Carl going on this huge homophobic rant, so he would probably haul me into an alley and kill me just for being gay, so never mind. Let's change my answer. Yes, I would, just not for plot-related reasons. 
would you die in the layer of the white worm? No. No. Not many people get killed. Also, the whole thing is she's looking for a virgin to sacrifice. And (laughs) that ship sailed long ago. So I don't think that that's necessarily something that would happen. Maybe turned into a snake acolyte, potentially. I mean, she was cool. So I'd probably hang out with her. And eventually she would probably bite me. But, you know, it is what it is. Then I would just be a snake person. Snake. Snack. 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 I'd be a snack person and then just go around and worship my snack god and be really happy about it. Just a happy little snack person. And some yeah. happy little trees and some not so happy little virgin sacrifices. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you would like, you can find us on social media on Twitter and Instagram and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns at Second to Die Pod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, You can always be second to die.